Hello, and welcome to the Sunday Sermon Cast from Bethel Evangelical Free Church on Washington Island, Wisconsin. I'm Rick Smith, and I've been here at Bethel since 2016, enjoying this great church on this spectacular place off the northern tip of Door County, Wisconsin. This message comes from our Sunday morning service here on the island, and it's geared towards discovering what the Bible has to say to us in our everyday lives. So, God's blessing on you, and thanks for joining with us wherever you are today. When we were living in Chicago, Betty Lou and I and the kids, we, uh, we took off for Colorado for Thanksgiving uh, to see my sister and my folks were going to be there. And, uh, and to get from Chicago to, to Colorado, to Denver in particular, it's really easy. I mean, if you've taken the trip, you know, get on Interstate 80 and just stay on Interstate 80 until you see a big sign that says Denver. And then you take that, I-76, just on the, the western side of Nebraska. It's really, really easy. And so we're going along, and I managed, however, to get lost in Iowa. I, I, all I had to do was stay on Interstate 80. But somehow, going through Des Moines, Iowa, I... Well, here's what happened. We're, we're going through. We're on the southwest side. We're just about all the way through all that city. And, and we get to this section, and, and I saw something on the road, and I'm looking, what is, what, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror and, and just trying to figure out what I, I looked at. And, and in that moment, there was, this, there was this, in my peripheral vision, thought it was an exit lane that went off to the right. There was two lanes to this exit lane, and I've gotten off at exits similar to that. So actually, just probably a half mile before that, there's a nice little cracker barrel. I go to the barrel for a little bit of lunch, and... But um, that wasn't it. This was the, uh, the turnoff for I-80. And as I turned back to look forward what I was going, I realized, this doesn't look right. <laughs> There's something not okay about this. And, and instead of by being on I-80 headed towards western Iowa and Nebraska, I was on I-35, <laughs> which goes south towards Kansas City, Missouri. It's like, this is not okay. <laughs> what was I doing? I was looking behind me and not forward to where I was going. And, and in being caught up with what was behind me, I lost sight of where I'm supposed to be headed. Well, part of, part of walking through this faith, and sometimes with Christmas, sometimes we get wrapped up in, in remembering Jesus' birth and, and, and all the stories that go along. And these are great stories. They're wonderful and excellent. But again, as we talked about with the kids, Advent is not centered upon that past because we know that happened we know the stories we've recited them several times we've seen so many christmas programs about it we've we've seen dramatizations of it it's not about what has happened that thrusts us forward to something else that in this day and this time we're looking forward to jesus to come and prepare ourselves for that but it's not for the first coming it's the second coming and, 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 and in, in very real sense, that's what the faith has been about for, for long periods of time. We remember the Christ event fondly, and we celebrate it. But again, we look towards the future. Uh, this candle is about looking forward to what we have hope in. And as we remember the coming of Christmas, we remember the return of the King a king that was foretold. And, and so to start off this, this Advent time of the year, I want to look at some things from the past that direct us towards 
what God has been doing and his intent all along. And so we're going to look at Psalm 1 and 2 today. Just briefly at Psalm 1, we actually looked at that in more detail when we were in our series on disciplines and, and what it means to meditate upon the Word of God. And blessed is he who, who meditates on the Word of God day and night. Uh, but Psalm 2, connected with Psalm 1, projects us towards what God's plan is all about. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd open up to Psalm chapter 1, and we'll start there and read into to 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit, its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then Psalm 2 begins this way. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again, Psalm 1 and 2 together, are, many think that, they, that they're a package set, that they introduced all the psalms, the 150 psalms that we have gathered together in our scriptures. And, and, and Psalm 1 begins by describing, this is how life ought to be lived. That there's two ways of walking in this world. There's one way, and it describes that, those who sit in the seat of, seat of mockers and stand in the way of sinners. That there is... There are people we can identify with, we can get ourselves connected with, that want nothing to do with living rightly, but more looking down at others. We certainly see many evidence of people who live this way. Uh, mockery and, and scoffing seem to be the order of the day. If you look on tweets or on Facebook posts, if people mention something that they're interested or excited about or an idea they have, you will see so many people giving disparaging remarks about, that's the most idiotic thing I've ever said, heard, and, and, and scoffing and mocking people who do that. And so There's people who do this and, and who live, live for sin, it would seem, but not the way of the person who's blessed. They walk with the Lord. They live according to his word and they pour themselves into it, knowing it day and night. And, and he describes them as, as being rooted deeply as a tree is by a, a river. 
always having a source of nutrition and, and, and the nutrients that it needs and the moisture that it needs to grow, flourish, and to bear fruits. This is the way of life that is good, that is blessed. And, and Psalm 1 gives us a direction for that and gives us the contrast that those who don't pursue this, they, well, they pursue something opposite of that, which is described as wicked. And then Psalm 2 comes along and, and, and helps us with another part of this reality. And it begins, well, it begins with a question. Asking, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? And, and it gives this picture almost like this, 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 this large round table of, of the rulers of the world. And, and they're sitting together and, and plotting and thinking, how can we remove ourselves from the arrogant one who says that he controls us? Let us throw off the one who controls us. And, and the one they're talking about is God, is Yahweh, the Lord himself. They, they want nothing to do with that. They want to be free. They want to have control of their own lives. And as they, they plot and, and, and try and do with that, a part of what they want to do is throw off, well, the restraints. I mean, they, they call God's direction for you can maybe say the Ten Commandments says part of this. This is how you're supposed to live, uh, to have no other God before me, to, to, to concentrate on him as, as the Holy One and the Only One, not to have idols and to, to, to keep his Sabbath holy and not use his name in vain. And, and then there's ways for us to live with one another, honoring our parents and, and not murdering and not committing adultery and, and not stealing and bearing fault witness and and not coveting or desiring or lusting after that which is others. This is the best way, God says, to live. But, but as the rulers of the world look at this, they say, this is a restraint. We need freedom. We need freedom. Freedom from all that that has on top of us. There was a commercial several years ago uh, about two guys, and they're, they're talking about crazy things that people do that they would just never have a part of because they're so risky. It's like motorcycle riding, that's insane. Who would do that? Or horseback riding or, or skydiving. They're just, this is, this is nuts. And, and as they're talking about all the things that they would never do, it's like, oh, yeah, no way. Uh, the camera pans back and, and uh, the sleeping bags that they're, they're in are, are discovered to be attached to a mountain. Actually, the flat face of this rock, hundreds of feet in the air, they're, they're tied up. they are climbing this mountain, and they're sleeping in a sleeping bag, in a hammock, on the side of this mountain. Well, they're kind of restrained. But the restraints that they have hold them to that mountain. If those restraints they were freed from, uh, it would be exciting for a while until they were dashed to their to pieces and and part of part of God's law his command his precepts gives us parameters of living and 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 the best ways to walk through this world and and yet for many people there is this sense that 
well, we just need to be free from those, these oppressive things that tell us how to live. Just let me live the way I want to live. Pursue what I want to pursue. And we get back to that contrast from Psalm 1. How do we live this life? Well, as the rulers want to throw this off, there's, there's this re- reaction from God. And, and starting in verse 4, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. This idea of, of, of breaking free and having control as humans, it's laughable to God. Scoffing at, at what they do. And then as the rebellion persists and inevitably the, the pain that they bring to others, and uh, there's a rebuke that comes to that. Uh, and these are not idle things. These are just not suggestions about how life is. But it's in some real sense what really happens. As we look at these psalms, we, are, we see the world as it is. Again, often wanting to eradicate itself from, from any kind of control. As we fast forward into the, the years of the early church and the things that lived, many of the, the decades and centuries following Christ's death and the growth of the church, there was opposition, strident opposition. Uh, and it didn't come at just the street level. It came all the way to the top. Emperors would want nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, in James Boyce's commentary on Psalms, he, he uh, reading actually from some things written by um, Charles Spurgeon, brings up the, uh, the emperor Diocletian. Diocletian was no friend of the church. He wanted to eradicate it completely. And, and when he pressed the empire westward towards Spain, he, he put up two monuments. And one of them said... Diocletian, Jovian, Maxim, Hereculus, Caesarus, Augusti, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. So that was one of the monuments he had erected in oh, about in the 8280s or 90s or so. And then a second one said this: Diocletian, Jovian, Maxim, Hereculus. Caesarus, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. He was bragging about having abolished Christianity. I have successfully done this. But he had not. In fact, uh, not only that, but Christianity was growing stronger during that time and eventually triumphed over Caesar's throne. Another quote from Spurgeon of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others in high office who ex- distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a, a miserable captivity, and so on. And among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger heavenward, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. 
But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it in the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. There are those who say, let's throw off all that God is. And the Lord enthroned in heaven scoffs and laughs at this. Because as powerful as they think their rebellion is, it will not last. Which brings us to the directions of God's promise and hope. In verses 7 to 9, he begins speaking of of this one who ruled for him. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Uh, uh, These verses are quoted often within the gospel. It is quoted by Peter in his his speech in Acts chapter 2 as he's describing the results of Christ's ministry, his death and resurrection, and, and how, how the Jewish authorities had attempted to eradicate him. But he begins explaining, what does this mean, this psalm that we know so well? How, it can't be David that we're speaking of. Because David, how could David say, to you, today you become my father? He's speaking of one greater. That's Peter's reasoning. The writer of Hebrews brings this same text up as a, as, a, as a picture of what Jesus is. That God calls Jesus his son, that which is beyond the angels. And as we look at it in the light of Psalms and this opposition to the one who enthroned in heaven by the kings, there is a direction of pointing towards a ruler who will reign. And the nations will be in his inheritance. These are the same nations whose rulers are, are talking about the ways they can throw off the restraints and the fetters of the Lord. These nations are going to be the inheritance of this new one. The proclamation of the Son's reign. Pointing toward, forward towards what God is going to do. And the hope that is found as we do that and look towards that. The psalm ends with a warning to those who disbelieve. You kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. The psalm is pointing us forward to a time and a place where where God will set things right. Where God will put things in their place again. For us, as we reflect upon Jesus and his life and his teaching, we reflect on his birth. The big word is the incarnation, that he came to be part of humanity. Why does he do that? Because he loves us and cares for us. And, and, and the whole story, all the way through Easter and the resurrection, these give us the context for the beginning of the story. Because the beginning of the story, his birth, explodes with meaning when we realize who he is 
and what he's done on our behalf. And so for us now, today, we look forward to the reign of this king. And so not looking back, but looking forward to what God will do, how he will work and set things to rights on the day that he comes. There's an organization in Montana. They offered a, a bounty of, of $5,000 for every wolf captured alive. And there were two hunters named Sam and Jed. Then they decided to head for the hills and, and make some money capturing wolves. Day and night, they scoured those mountains and forests, searching for their valuable prey. And after three days of hunting, exhausted, without any success, they both fell asleep. During the night... Sam suddenly woke up to find that he and Jed were surrounded by a pack of 50 wolves. Flaming red eyes, bared, snarling teeth, prepared to pounce. And so Sam, in this situation, nudged Jed and said, Hey, wake up. We're going to be rich. (laughs) Sam was pretty optimistic. Sometimes we can look at our world and, and, and look at the very real ways in which culture uh, does not want anything to do with knowing who God is and, and, and living for him. To bring up Jesus and, uh, and walking with Jesus is to conjure up similar things as those nations, rulers from Psalm 2. Scoffing, let us throw that off. Let us not be inhibited and restrained by that. We've got to be free. And for us, sometimes we think the world's against us and we're surrounded by a pack of snarling wolves. But Sam's comrade's pretty good. We're going to be rich. Because as we look forward to this time when Jesus comes and will set things right, we're rich. Rich in the inheritance as with our brother Jesus and the life that we have and the, and the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. This beautiful place described in Revelation as John's vision. God will emerge victorious. We're going to be rich. We're going to be in his family, in his presence. And we have that to look forward to. And that's what we prepare for. We live this life out now recognizing God's working, God's moving, God's calling us no matter what the situations we're working through. God wins in the end. We may go through those hard things. We may may be killed by something in this world. We may be killed by opposition. We might be imprisoned for saying things as... uh, Diana says, using the word cousin instead of another word for the risk possibly of being arrested or imprisoned, but to do so nevertheless would be still in the care of God. The nations will be your inheritance. This will be your glory. And that's our hope. That's our joy. That's our expectation. Let's stand for closing prayer.
Father, we come to you this morning, and we work with excellency to what you're going to do in our hearts and our lives, in the hearts and lives of those whom we love and continue to, to develop and grow with. Lord, give us your peace and your confidence as we look forward to the hope that we have. That as we remember Emmanuel, God with us, in a very real sense, you continue to be with us as you've given us your spirit. And we walk faithfully these days. Help us to remember this hope we have, this faith you've directed us towards, and the life that you promise. Give us boldness. Give us peace as we trust in your hope. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. God bless you this day. Well, thanks again for listening. And to learn more about how you can connect with Bethel Community Church, check out our website at islandbethelchurch.com or join us for a service Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 1045. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.